you can turn with me uh, in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 1. That's where our scripture reading comes from this morning. Matthew chapter 1, and we're going to be reading verses 18 through 25 together through to the end of the chapter. We will remain standing out of honor for the Lord and for his word. Matthew chapter 1, starting in verse 18. Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke from his sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. You may be seated. And we are going to, in just a moment, go to the Lord in prayer. As we do, just want to mention, uh, we're going to pray for one of our missionary families that we support uh, today, and that's the Perrys, Nate and Kayla Perry, who uh, serve with a, a group of people in a country in the Horn of Africa, a very difficult place for ministry. They're actually home right now, though, on furlough, and I was just told after first service that they are having a baby on Wednesday. So we will pray for them, and it's a very exciting time for their family. Uh, let's pray together. Father, even as we read about, about this time in history when you were sending your son into the world, we are just, we're reminded of the great need present in each of us for a Savior. We're reminded of our own sinfulness in light of your holiness. And, and Lord, we, we know that without Christ, there would have been no hope for us. Our hearts are just drawn away after everything that dishonors you. As unbelievers, it was that way. Even as believers, we watch ourselves just stumble and, and, and fall, and we continue to turn away from you. And so, Lord, we thank you so much for Jesus. Thank you that at the exact right time, at the culmination of history, after all the prophets had anticipated him, you sent your son, uh, born of a virgin, to enter the world in the most humble way and to live humbly and to live perfectly and to die for sinners like us. Lord, we worship you. We know that all of our hope rests in Jesus. And today, together as your people, we just acknowledge again our need for Christ. We need the blood of Christ shed for us on the cross. We need his resurrection. We need the life that can only come through faith in him. We need his spirit. We need the grace of Jesus to sustain us uh, each and every day until we are with you forever. Lord, we just, we just thank you and praise you that you would show such grace and kindness to unworthy people like us, that you would lift us out of our own sin and out of darkness and bring us into light and life in Christ. Thank you that for, for the joy and meaning and purpose that you filled our lives with. Lord, we worship you for these things. We also thank you so much for Nate and Kayla uh, Perry, and we thank you especially for this exciting time in their life, having a baby in just a few days. Lord, we pray um, that your hand would be there in all of that. We know that it will. We pray for 
uh, wisdom for everybody involved and, and just a joyful time for their family as they're welcoming their first uh, child into the family. We pray that um, more broadly as their home on furlough, this time would be an encouragement to them that they would be strengthened and, and um, just refreshed so that when they go back in this coming year to serve, they would have a lot of eagerness in that and uh, feel the support of the church here. Lord, we, we pray for their ministry, and we ask that the people whom they are interacting with, uh, Lord, that you would work in their hearts to bring them from death to life, that you would cause the gospel to go forward and be fruitful, that you would allow them to even see uh, the joy of, of people coming and the harvest being filled as people are coming to Christ. Uh, we pray that you would use what they're doing for eternal purposes and that you would encourage them in the work. Lord, we thank you for this morning. Thank you that everything that we have, it's all of grace. And we pray that it would be that very grace this morning that works in our hearts to exalt Christ and to help our eyes to see him and his love more clearly. Lord, we pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. child is this who lay to rest on Mary's lap is sleeping whom angels greet with anthem sweet while shepherds watch are keeping this this is Christ the King whom shepherds God and angels sing Taste, taste to bring him love, the babe, the son of Mary. While I see in such Yeah. 
this Jesus who would be born of Mary and who would live a perfect life and die a death he did not deserve. God, thank you that we can sing of this Jesus knowing the story of Jesus does not end in the manger nor does it end in the cross, but he is risen and he reigns even today. We love you. We ask that we would see you more clearly because of our time in your word this morning. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Every birth is a miracle, and the Bible is no stranger to startling births. You could call it a book of miracle children and startling births. Starts all the way back with Abraham and Sarah. God promised to send them a son. They were both beyond normal childbearing age and they laughed at the idea, but they witnessed Isaac's miraculous arrival. Think of Samson, born to Manoah and his barren wife, a special son who would deliver the Israelites. Think of Samuel, the first prophet, final judge, anointer of kings, birthed by the providential power of God. Answer to the persevering prayers of his godly, childless, formerly childless mother, Hannah. I think of John the Baptist and the forerunner to Jesus, born to Elizabeth after God graciously intervenes when she's in her 70s. And God brings about miraculous births, but no birth was as startling as the virgin birth of Christ. So much so that many people use that as an example, uh, excuse not to believe. And they use that as an example and say, see, I couldn't believe the gospel because I don't believe the virgin birth. And it's sad to see people push away the life raft of the gospel. And it happened back then and it happens today. How did it start happening more in our time? Well, man-centered ideas started infiltrating American universities in the 1800s and 1900s and infected many seminaries even. Godly Professors stood their ground against those who would deny God, but others caved into the pressure and denied the literal bodily resurrection of Jesus and denied the virgin birth. For them, belief in the virgin birth became an embarrassment, and they wanted to prove that Christ's birth was not supernatural. Enemies then, enemies now, attack his virginal conception But the interesting thing is, if anyone is trying to make the case that the New Testament does not teach it, they're wasting their time. It's clearly taught in the Bible. The apostles did not doubt our Savior's conception was the result of divine intervention. Mary, as surprised as any, did not doubt it. She knew how children were made, and she knew she was a virgin. Joseph and Mary both received this news And they receive this news, and and they realize nothing's impossible with God. Question 35 of the Heidelberg Catechism says the virgin birth shows how God could truly unite himself to a human nature, but remain unstained by sin in the process. 
miracle of the incarnation of the virgin birth, one of the foundations, one of the deepest mysteries of the Christian faith, and it's one that we dare not deny. It's one that we dare not trifle with. It was promised, it happened. Christ was sinless, perfect, born of a virgin. And just like everything else in the Bible, we take it on faith, and we must take it to heart. We're going to take it to heart today. We're going to see that Joseph humbly trusted God. He humbly trusted God. God wants you to humbly trust him. Joseph humbly trusted God. He didn't trust his own mind. He didn't trust whatever everyone else was telling him to think. He had humble trust in the true Messiah, and God wants your humble trust in every aspect of your life. This Christmas, we're, we're attempting to reset our hearts to resist lies and rest in Christ and receive the truth and believe and walk after the true Messiah. Last week, we looked at his sinful family tree, which uh, really shows his singular identity as the uh, promised sovereign and perfect savior. The, the genealogy, the first 17 verses, shows here's what Christmas means. Here's what Christmas represents. No matter what anyone else tells you about it, this is what Christmas means. This is what Christmas represents. Jesus is the promised sovereign and the perfect savior. He's son of David, promised king, reigning forever. He's son of Abraham, perfect one, providing salvation. His singular identity highlights and, and really provides the only salvation for his family tree and for you and I. And next week, we're going to look at, at those who sinisterly opposed Christ. On Christmas Eve, we'll look at his spectacular birth. Christmas Day, his sovereign glory. But today, foundation of our faith, his startling incarnation. Many people have tried to describe it in words and, and draw pictures and sing songs. And Charles Wesley put it this way, let earth and heaven combine, angels and men agree, to praise in songs divine the incarnate deity. And then this, this sentence that I absolutely love, our God contracted in a span, incomprehensibly made man. But you can't improve on Emmanuel. You can't improve on what the Holy Spirit gave us, God with us, to save us. Poets try, but you can't beat the sure word of God. Now, as we work through this passage that is very familiar to a lot of people, we're going to see the situation that's going on. We're going to see a plan that Joseph has. We're going to see God intervene, and then the reason and the result after that, as we work through this passage. The first thing we see is the situation, and just like when you're watching a movie or you're reading a book, you get information as the, the, the viewer or as the reader that all the characters don't have. And so the situation, there's a narrative going on, and this is to us. Now, the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way, verse 18. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph before they came together before they came together in marital and domestic union, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. Now, all Joseph knew is she was found to be with child. You have to remember that. Now, it takes Matthew one verse to say what it, what it takes you and I a lifetime to grasp and to, and to even start to appreciate. This is it, one verse. Now, the birth of Jesus took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. 
This is an answer to the promise in Genesis 3.15. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise your head, you shall bruise his heel. Mary had received a lot of information before this, okay? In Luke 1, 26 to 38, uh, she, she finds out that she is going to be the, the mother of the Messiah before she is pregnant. And, and she, her response is, let it be to me according to your word. Okay, let's, 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 I'm going to go along with this. Not that she had much choice. Now, we don't know much about Mary and Joseph. We don't know much about them. We know a little bit about Mary. We know a little bit about Joseph. What do we know about Mary? She was a godly young woman from Nazareth. She was from a a poor family, and she was probably 15 or 16 years old because that's about the standard engagement age in that culture, in that time. What do we know about Joseph? He was a craftsman, probably a carpenter, son of Jacob. We know he was righteous and just, these verses tell us, that he put saving faith in the coming Messiah. But that's pretty much all we know, and I think, it's, I think it's good that that's about all we know so we don't start to fill in all the blanks. This is not about Mary and Joseph. This is about Jesus. This is about how God brought about salvation for his chosen people. And so Mary and Joseph, they're betrothed, engaged, if you will. Uh, but it was in those days as if you were legally married. And it was a time of preparation to, to test purity and to test fidelity and um, in those days, the marriage customs had uh, two, two basic stages of the relationship. The betrothal and then the wedding ceremony about a year later. So the betrothal was in two stages. First, you had to find a spouse, okay? First, you had to choose the spouse. Family would usually initiate the arrangements. Not a bad idea, by the way. But two-stage betrothal. First stage, choose a spouse. Second stage, make it official before witnesses, So people would come together, and this was illegally binding, only broken by a formal process of divorce. And they were often in the betrothed process, betrothal process, called husband and wife. But they they did not come together yet to consummate the marriage. So we're talking like a year long. Now, if you were unfaithful during this stage, that was thought of as adultery. And the penalty, as maybe maybe you know, was, was stoning by death very seriously taken. By New Testament times, that penalty wasn't being enforced as much. And then a year later, the wedding ceremony, and the bridegroom and his friends would travel to the bride's home and escort she and her friends back to the bridegroom's home uh, for the wedding supper. And the the parents and the friends would bless the couple, and and the father uh, of the bride would draw up a written marriage covenant contract, like you better treat my daughter well or else. Something like this, probably. Now, what we're reading here in verse 18, this happened before they came together, before the marriage was finalized, before the marriage was consummated. And what, what we find out is that Mary was pregnant. How do we know? Well, the words used is for stomach. The word is used for stomach. It's, her womb was filled It's not like, oh, Mary, it looks like you're gaining a little weight. No, everybody could tell she was showing she had a baby in her her womb. Now, we know this, how the baby came about, but Joseph didn't. And he did not know what we know, that the source and the cause is the Holy Spirit. We're given the information. 
because this is about Jesus, and this is information we need that Jesus is God. And, and God in his infant wisdom planned this before time began. But the situation was Mary was pregnant before consummating the marriage. And so Joseph came up with a plan. Verse 19. All, knew, all Joseph knew was that Mary was pregnant, and so all he could assume is she had been unfaithful. Her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. It says he's a just man, literally a righteous man. It's a Hebrew, of say, Hebrew way of saying a true believer in God that was trusting in the coming Messiah. And he would be carefully obeying the law. He was declared righteous by faith. This is a, a, a believer, like Noah. Genesis 6, 9, Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his day, in his generation. Noah walked with God. Joseph walked with God. He was a righteous man, so it was appropriate for him to then obtain a certificate of divorce since he thinks that she has committed adultery, and what and adultery produces a state of impurity which legally dissolved the marriage. So Joseph's like, I can't marry her. He knows it. And he would, if he married her, he would be condoning adultery. So he has two options. The first option is let it be known publicly, which would absolutely shame her. Uh, someone could do that, but it would probably a lot of anger would come out and a lot of uh, frustration and maybe even some vindictiveness. But it would give her a, a, a worse disgrace, and she would be subject to disgrace as an adulteress. The other option that was, was available to him was to do it privately. And as a just man, as a believer in God, this is what he was going to do. This would allow him to retain his righteousness, and it would save Mary from public disgrace and scorn and maybe even death. And this was allowed. He, he, he was a believer. He was merciful. And so this tough decision... It was not a knee-jerk reaction. It was a careful deliberation. And he's, he goes through and, and checks down the options. Humiliate her publicly? No, I cannot do that. Private arrangement? Yes, that's, that's all I can do here. In the pain, in the frustration, uh, in the dashed hopes, in the, you know, his whole life before him, thinking, well, this is, is ruined. My, my marriage is ruined. So he decides, I'm going to release her. I'm going to dismiss her, I'm going to divorce her, I'm going to send away my beloved, my betrothed, and it's, it's the only wise thing for a godly man to do. So Mary's pregnant, and Joseph has a plan, let's do, the, let's do the right thing, let's do the kind thing, let's do the merciful thing here. But God intervenes. God breaks through in the situation, and in verse 20, it says, as he considered these things, his mind is full of a thousand thoughts, and he's thinking over his options, and he's confused in his state of mind, and, and it says, behold. When you see behold in, in the Bible, especially in Matthew, this signifies a surprising, unexpected action on God's part. When you see behold, your ears should perk up. You should think, what's going to happen next? Because God's going to do something here. So he's considering these things, and behold, an angel of the Lord appears to him. A created spirit being, an angel, literally messenger from God to humanity, comes to him in a dream. 
a vision. This is not normative. This is not common. It wasn't normative. It wasn't common. It wasn't then. It isn't now. But it was a way that God uh, communicated with some people as the Bible was still being written. And, and this angel is unnamed. There was an unnamed angel that announced the birth of Jesus to shepherds. And now here, Joseph. It could be Gabriel. We don't know. Gabriel had a special role in announcing things. Gabriel appears in Daniel 8 and 9. Uh, and in Luke, the angel, he's the angel of the Lord that announces the birth of John the Baptist to Zechariah and the birth of Jesus to Mary. But whatever the case, this angel says, Joseph, so no confusion on who he's talking to, son of David, you're in line of the Messiah, and do not fear to take Mary as your wife. Literally, stop being afraid. You know, we all know that the fear of man brings a snare. We know it from the Bible. We know it from experience. He says, stop fearing to, to take Mary as your wife. Quit fearing. Stop being afraid. Stop it. Stop fearing. Take her to yourself. Take her into your home as your wife. A reason. For that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. Now he has what we know. He has the information now that we know. Now he's up to speed. What is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. The Old Testament writers would refer to the Spirit of God and as, as really the vehicle or agency of the power of God. But here, this is not until the incarnation is the Spirit of God understood as a distinct person from the Father and the Son. That is what, what's conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. He goes on, verse 21, she will bear a son. So, you know, blue powder in the air or a blue cookie or a blue donut or whatever. Uh, she will bear a son. It's going to be a boy. And you shall call his name or give him the name Jesus. That's not an uncommon name in those days. People would name their children Jesus because they had messianic hope. But it, but it gets more specific. You will call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. Now he's getting information that is, is if, if his mind wasn't blown then, you know, his mind's on the floor now, because now he realizes I'm going to have a son that I'm going to care for, but it won't be my son. And, and by the way, this word son summarizes the whole genealogy of verses 1 to 17 looking for the Messiah over and over. None of those people in, the, in that genealogy were the Messiah. Jesus is. Jesus, popular first century name given to sons as a symbolic hope of, of Yahweh sending salvation. Now Joseph hears this is Yahweh. This is Yahweh. So the, the Messiah that was expected, what were people expecting? They were expecting uh, deliverance from Rome's oppression, Right? But the angel is drawing on the less popular, humanly speaking, but most important theme, they needed salvation from their sins. So he is going to save them from their sins. We missed the mark. We missed the glory of God. We need salvation. You and I need salvation from our sins. Joseph needed salvation from his sins. Mary needed salvation from her sins. And so even after the death and burial and resurrection and the ascension, the apostles are preaching. They're preaching Christ. And they say, God, Acts 3, 26, God, having raised up his son Jesus, send him to bless you, to turn every one of you 
from your sins. Acts 4.12, there is salvation in no one else. There is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Acts 5.31, God exalted to his right hand as prince and savior to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. Revelation 1, verses 5 and 6, Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, prince of the kings of the earth, to him who loved us and washed us from our sins in his own blood. And Joseph is finding out. Back then, in real time, that this baby to be born was the savior of the world. God intervenes. And what does he intervene with? Comfort. Don't be afraid. This is from me. But he also gives him a command. The comfort of salvation, salvation has arrived. But the command, you will name him Jesus. It's not a suggestion, it's a command. We must receive God's comfort, but we also must receive his commands. Nowadays, we like to say, well, we don't like that. There's five views on that command. I'll wait till I hear more information. Now, you know what? It, we, we need to obey much more readily than most of us do. God, God here intervenes and with comfort and command, salvation and naming, and we must receive his comfort and his commands knowing where salvation comes from. So Mary's pregnant. Joseph's gonna do the right thing, but God intervenes and says, no, you're gonna marry Mary, and, and here's the reason, verses 22 and 23. All this took place, all of it, every bit of it, all of it took place, it happened so that, it happened in order that God's word would be fulfilled, to fulfill what was spoken by the Lord through the prophet, Isaiah. Literally, to fulfill God's promises. This was the fulfillment. I think a lot of times, you know, you're praying for something for many years and, and, and something, and it actually comes about and you, you don't realize, right? Wow, I've been praying for this. A friend of mine got saved, and I've been praying that they would be saved for many years. I've been appealing to them with the gospel with, for many years, and now they got saved, and, I, and I, it doesn't hit us sometimes. And here, the hope of the ages has, has, is going to arrive, the fulfillment of God's promise. And, and you think of all the events surrounding this conception of Jesus. It's fulfilling Isaiah's prophecy that was made during a threat under Ahaz, king of Judah that actually had a, a immediate uh, fulfillment. This is the fulfillment. The, uh, back in, in the day when, when Isaiah said it, he, uh, he was saying God's not gonna allow an invasion. He's gonna maintain the promised descendant of David that would sit on his throne forever, that was promised in 2 Samuel 7. And, and, he, and, he, and here's the, here it is, verse 23, behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. Hebrew word, which means God with us. The virgin shall conceive. Two, two primary words for, for virgin in Hebrew. Alma, which means maiden or young girl, but it can also mean married woman. And then Batula can be virgin or old widow. Alma is the word used here, and even in the Greek translation of the Old Testament, the Septuagint, Parthenos is used for Alma, unmarried virgin woman. Even one more, one more thing that points us right to Mary. 
So Isaiah prophesied at the time of Ahaz, 734 BC, that a virgin at that time would bear a son and would be called Emmanuel in, in hopes of the promise of the Messiah. And, and it was done in, in dark days. It was done in difficult times. And this was a promise that was given. And the promise was that before the child knew between right and wrong, Judah would be delivered from the threat of invasion from two kings. And it happened. Northern alliance was broken in 732 BC within the time frame predicted as a sign to Ahaz. A virgin would marry, have a child. The child would know the difference between good and evil and, and his immediate fulfillment. The sign to Ahaz, the house of Judah. But it was also, a, there was a greater fulfillment. It's this prediction of the future Messiah who would reign forever and would provide salvation from sin. In fact, Isaiah 9, 6 says, the child to be born will be called Wonderful, would be called Counselor, would be called Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Only Jesus is the fulfillment of that. The prophecy said that they would call him Emmanuel, means God with us. So the angel tells Joseph, you name him Jesus, now, he wasn't called Emmanuel by his family and followers. Uh, Emmanuel indicates his identity, God with us. Jesus describes what he does. God saves. Do you remember the, uh, the Jesus saves signs that were out in L.A., those two red signs that were there down in downtown L.A.? And, uh, I love that, that. I love that. Jesus saves. You know what you're saying when you say Jesus saves? God saves, saves. Because Jesus means God saves. God saves. And he saves. Yes. Mercy for sinners. That, that we can come, even if you're a believer today, you can come boldly to the throne of grace because of, of what Jesus did in your life saving you and you would be able to find mercy and, and grace to help in your time of need. No matter how small of a thing or how big of a thing that you could come to God through Christ because of his mercy for sinners. Emmanuel, who he is, God with us. You know, it's interesting. When you're praying in the name of Jesus, most of us will pray at the end of a prayer and say, in Jesus' name. What you're doing is you're saying, it's not just a tag on a little stamp of approval. It's according to who he is and what he does. God with us who saves. Jesus, Emmanuel. And this is all done to fulfill God's word. Seven other times in Matthew, you see these this phrase, it was, it, this, was, this came about to fulfill what was spoken before. It's like Isaiah 12, 2. God is my salvation, in him I trust. I will not be afraid. The Lord is my strength, my song, and he has become my salvation. In 1 Timothy three sixteen, great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness, that he was manifested in the flesh. It's the incarnation. So there's a situation, there's a plan to to rectify the situation, and then God intervenes, and, and the reason is fulfillment of Scripture. The fulfillment of the plan of God, the fulfillment of the plan of the ages, and the result, and this is very key, look at verse 24. When Joseph awoke, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife. He got up. He didn't run. He didn't go through with his plan to divorce her quietly. He was gonna be known as the father of an illegitimate child for his whole lifetime. 
Mary would be known as the one who committed adultery, and Jesus would be known as an illegitimate child. Momser is the word that was used. But he got up, he obeyed God's command, he was conscience bound to obey, he was a just man, he, he believed the Lord and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. He's in league with Noah, Abraham, Moses, who did likewise. When God said, do this, and they did it. They, they got the word of God. You know, we do, we, we read the word of God and we're like, man, I'm not really feeling it. Oh, man, there's five, there's five options and the one I like best is the one that feels good to me. We never choose the harder of the two ways or the three ways or the four ways that could be taken. God meant what he said and, and Joseph gets up and he obeys God's command. Verse 25 says, he knew her not, means they didn't have normal marital physical relations until she had given birth to a son. He called his name Jesus. So no union with her until she gave birth to a son, but also no, con uh, no continued celibacy after Jesus' birth. They had normal relations after Jesus' birth. You see it in the Gospels. They had other sons and daughters. Luke 2 says she brought forth her firstborn son. She had other sons. And wrapped him in swaddling clothes and laid him in a manger. Luke 2.21 says after eight days when he had circ was he circumcised, he was called Jesus. The name given by the angel before he was conceived in the womb. All along, step by step, they're just following God. And you know what Matthew's doing? This is beautiful. 17 verses of a, of a genealogy that shows his humanity. And now he's showing his divine nature in the conception narrative. And the angel clearly says, this is not of ordinary means. You know, people know where babies come from. If you, if you don't, check with your family, okay? But uh, people know where babies come from. And, and, and what, what, they, what they knew then, this was a completely unparalleled action of the Holy Spirit. This was a big action on the part of God, the virgin conception and birth of Jesus, and its accepted reality by those who believe. The God took on a human nature and is with his people, and only the God-man could atone for sin, for humanity's sin. So we worship Jesus, God saves, God with us. Emmanuel, God with us. We, we receive these words by faith, just like we do the, whole, the, the rest of the inspired and errant infallible word of God. The Holy Spirit is established from the very beginning of the New Testament, the humanity and deity of Christ, and his incarnation is essential to the Christian faith. It's not optional. Even skeptics admit, yes, the early Christians believed and taught the Holy Spirit conceived Jesus without help from a, from a human father. But then what they'll do, they turn right around and discount the validity of Scripture and say, well, the writers were wrong. They were mistaken, and they will give no credence to the authority of Scripture. The harshest critics would say the Bible authors actually adopted pagan virgin birth legends to Jesus' birth. That's blasphemous. Even today, if you're sitting here and listening, or you're on the live stream and you're listening, you're either going to turn away and reject this or take it on faith. If you don't believe it, you don't believe the resurrection, you don't believe the return of Christ. You cannot be believing in the resurrection and the return of Christ if you don't believe in the virgin birth. It's, it's, just, it's just not you know, intellectually honest to say that. Oh, I, I go with the resurrection and the return of Christ, but I can't go with the virgin birth. Sorry, you just blew all three out of the water. There is no redemption apart from God becoming man, completely man and completely God, 
to reconcile to himself people lost in sin through the substitutionary death and resurrection of Christ. This is what Joseph believed. This is him humbly trusting God. What was his humble trust founded upon? Let's apply this even for us. If, if you look under the hood and you say, what was there in Joseph? What was going on that maybe God might want in us? Beyond just saying humble trust in God. Well, what, what, what was going on? Well, the first thing is that he had an accurate view of God. If you want to apply it, you need to have an accurate view of God if you're going to have humble trust in God. You need to actually be worshiping the one true God uh, revealed in Scripture. That, God, that Joseph was just, and he let God easily override him. A lot of us are like, oh, nope, I need more proof. No, he just took it on faith. He let God easily override him. He relied on God. He, clung, he was clinging to the promises of God. He, he was clinging to God's perfections. He was a just man. He was righteous because he was believing in the Messiah. He was following the word of God. This is what a, being a just, righteous man means. He would believe things about God like God is self-existent. He's independent. He has all glory and, and life and blessedness in and of himself. He is the great I am. Who am I to question him? His glory and blessedness are from him and no other. His glory, the absolute perfection of his nature, the possession and enjoyment of all his infinite excellencies. He is in no help from his creatures. Like he didn't need Joseph. He doesn't need you and I. That he does not derive glory from us. We give glory to him, the glory that is already his. That he is perfect, that he is limitless in all his infinite perfections, that he is immutable, that he is unchanging, that there is no shadow of turning in him. And, and this is, is what Joseph would have believed. He wasn't just saying, well, God is love and a loving God wouldn't do this to me. Sometimes in the history of the ages, God's people have emphasized and overemphasized certain attributes of God above others, as if there's one attribute to rule them all. At times, it's been the otherness of God, the holiness of God. Of times, it's been the nearness of God, his being with us, his love, his, his grace, his mercy. But there is not one attribute to rule them all. All his attributes are his perfections. They're, they're like facets on the same diamond, just glittering in beauty. I think oftentimes our desire to isolate one attribute shows our desire to harness God, get a God we like. You raise one attribute above others, you are in sincere danger of worshiping a lopsided God that you'd prefer, or worse, a Santa God versus the true God. But what, what Joseph would have grasped, and what we need to grasp is what truly sets God apart is his godness, that he's God. <laughs> That he is God, and, and, and not one attribute fully describes him. We need to love them all. That he is God, and him is all perfection, and, and, and this is what sets him apart. And Joseph evidently knew it and lived in the shadow of that reality. If Joseph were here today, you know what he might say? If, if someone like living today, well, God never promised me more than I can handle, and this is more than I can handle, so it must not be from God. But actually, he didn't ever promise you and I more than you know, to not give us more than we can handle. He didn't. There's no promise that says that. The promise in 1 Corinthians 10, 13 is that uh, the temptation, no temptation has overtaken you, but such as is common to man and God is faithful, he will not allow you to be tempted beyond your abil ability. 
But life is always too much for you and me. Life was too much for Joseph. That's why he needed God. I mean, are we really going to make a, a, a statement that we don't need God? That, you know, I can handle this? We can never handle life. First step in resisting temptation. What is it? Well, you chase the, or, the disorienting things away by remembering who God is, by looking to Christ. As Daniel 11 says, the people who know their God will be strong and will take action. But don't think for a moment that there wasn't a battle waging in Joseph's mind. He was a person just like us. And the battle wages in the mind, for the mind. Was Joseph feeling hurt? Absolutely. Was he feeling bitter? Absolutely. Was he feeling angry? I don't know, but probably all those thoughts would have been rolling in his head. His beloved, in his, all he knew is that she was pregnant outside of marriage. Then he finds out what God has to tell him, and his accurate view of God counteracted his whatever wayward thinking that might have been there. Think about it. And if you have an accurate view of God, it banishes the pity party. Why would God do this to me? And it banishes the accusing. God is, must not be good if he's going to do this to me. No, he knows, and he is good. And, and, and Joseph was able to do this because he had a humble trust founded on an accurate view of God. He's a just man. But he also accepted the word of God. A second application would be, he absolutely accepted the word of God. Verse 22, all this took place to fulfill what was spoken. That Jesus, he, he was finding out in real time, Jesus was conceived through the direct intervention of the Spirit of God. And the Savior had to be human. Human must pay for human sin. It's impossible for a, a sinful human to pay for sin. You got the virgin birth. Truly human, truly God, untainted by, by Adam's sin. The word became flesh, human nature, no inherited corruption. The virgin birth, this is how God sent a sinless savior. And, and Joseph took that truth. He will save his people from their sins. He's God with us. Spirit conceived, virgin born. I love, uh, I love it when a, a group just comes up with a, just a statement that just encapsulates what scripture tells us. Uh, the Ligonier statement on Christ is like that. It goes like this. We confess the mystery and wonder of God made flesh and rejoice in our great salvation through Jesus Christ our Lord. With the Father and the Holy Spirit, the Son created all things, sustains all things, and makes all things new. Truly God, he became truly man, two natures in one person. He was born of the Virgin Mary and lived among us. Crucified, dead, buried, he rose on the third day, ascended to heaven, and will come again in glory and judgment. For us, he kept the law, atoned for sin, and satisfied God's wrath. He took our filthy rags and gave us his righteous robe. He is our prophet, priest, and king. He is building his church. He is interceding for us and reigning over all things. Jesus Christ is Lord. We praise his holy name forever. Amen. We know that Joseph accepted the word of God. Do you believe God's word? Or do you believe your own ideas? Do you believe your own mind? Does your own mind trump God's word? Does your own mind override God's word? But faith is a gift from God. We know it. But some, we know, have trouble believing the gospel, believing the virgin birth. And what God does calls for mind-bending trust. Now, some people might say, well, but I'm an atheist, so I'm free from all that. Oh my goodness, let's not go down that rabbit, that rabbit hole. Atheism asks you to believe in possible mutations. We'll leave it at that. 
the moral fool says in his heart, there is no God. But Joseph, a just man, he wasn't a pagan and he wasn't living like a pagan. You know how we always like to ask, like, hey, is so-and-so a Christian? Or maybe you have a relative that dies and you're like, oh, were they a believer? Well, what I wanna know is were they professing faith in Christ and were they living it? We wanna be doers of the word, not just hearers of it. Joseph wasn't a pagan, he wasn't living like a pagan. He, you know, if he were living today and if he were in the, in the, the general population of the Christian community, he might have shot back at God and said, you know, that might all be well and good, but there are five different views of what you're telling me. But I think that Joseph's heart was more in line with the psalmist in Psalm 119, verses 49 to 52. Remember your word to your servant in which you have made me hope. This is my comfort in my affliction. Your promise gives me life. The insolent utterly deride me. Joseph would be known as the father of an illegitimate child who married an unfaithful woman. The insolent utterly deride me, but I do not turn away from your law. When I think of your rules from of old, I take comfort, O Lord. We ought to have humble trust founded upon an accurate view of God and the acceptance of the word of God, but there's something more. I'll just bring one more thing up that Joseph surrendered to the will of God. When he knew what it was, it was just all in. You got two main people in this narrative, besides Jesus, who is the most important, but Mary and Joseph, both chosen and both pleasing to God. And Joseph was understandably shaken. Who wouldn't be? He was startled. He was surprised. Who wouldn't be? But he was reassured of truth by God. He got that. He, he was... And he knew, he knew he was going to live with the stigma, he was going to live with the shame, he, and he chose faith over fear. Mary, equally surprised, but immediately surrendered and yielded in, 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 in the Magnificat, what's known as the Magnificat, the first word in Latin, magnify, my soul magnifies the Lord. That's, that's her response to this news. But she knew her innocence. She knew she was a virgin. She knew her purity. She knew her faithfulness. She knew her chastity. She wasn't sinless. She was a sinner, but she was pure. And there was no amount of accusation in her life that would change that. She knew the truth. Sometimes all you can go by is the truth. And just go by with the truth even if, if other people are believing lies about you. All would think her a sinful woman. All would think of Jesus as an illegitimate child. They would say of him dismissively, he's Mary's son. They would say to him derisively, we were not born of fornication. They would, as many do today, ridicule and blaspheme God. And a lot of people, when stuff like this happens, they just run for the hills. Like, you know what? I didn't sign up for this. You signed up, you signed up for a cross. Following Jesus cost us our life. Many run for the hills when the going gets tough and will leave Christ for the world's enticements, trade treasure for trash. And, you know, Fox's Book of Martyrs was written in 1563. I think today it would be easier to write a book of apostates, how many people have left the faith. But Joseph didn't do what many do. He didn't say, well, you know, what I think doesn't match up with what I heard or what God said. He didn't say, I'm going I'm to insist on what I think, or I'm, I'm going to twist what God says to agree with me. No, he, he surrendered. 
He yielded. He dug in because he knew God and he believed him. So he surrendered. And when, when you surrender to God, there could be a thousand voices telling you otherwise. You're going to go with what God says in his word. God, the, the surrender settles the matter. It just settles it. It says, come what may, God, you have full sway over me. And you will hold me steady even if I waver. You will save me from my sins. You save your people from their sins and, and you reorient me to eternal purposes. Joseph humbly trusted God, not his own mind. He had an accurate view of God. He accepted the word of God. He surrendered to the will of God. That's what we need to do. And I think about Joseph and I think about his obedience and I think about the startling news of the incarnation. But it shows the true nature of saving faith. Obedient trust in a savior you cannot see but still believe. And it's based on the objective, authoritative truth in scripture, even, even if the cost is lifelong accusations and false assumption of others. Joseph humbly trusted. I could, I could see him saying something like this. I could see him responding to God, something like this. I hear the words and I, I see this misty form of angelic majesty if not by faith, I would run away and hide myself from thee. I hear the words that pierce my heart and cause such great agony. So now in humble trust I bow before your throne of grace and glory. What scorn I will receive and more for this holy task I will fulfill. I will be thought obscene by all, lose my reputation. Still I will walk this road you set for me, this agonizing hill. So now in humble trust I choose to follow your good and sovereign will. He was humbly trusting the true Messiah. God wants us to humbly trust the true Messiah. And Lord God, thank you that you sent Christ to earth to take on human nature and die for us on the cross. Thank you that Jesus took on the reputation of an illegitimate child. But Jesus, we know he knew no illegitimacy, but he took our sin upon himself so that we might be saved and even become the righteousness of God in him. We believe in this Savior, God with us to save us. And in his name we pray, amen. We come to the Lord's table, a sacred time for the body of Christ, for believers who have trusted their temporal life and eternity upon Christ and believed in his sacrifice for sins and believe that he truly is God with us who saves us. It's for the body of Christ. It's for believers. An unbeliever would, would not know what to do with this. Jesus gave it to us. Jesus instructed us, come to this table together and remember him with joy and not, not with sorrow over our sins, but with joy over his sacrifice for our sins. I always remember the story of a, I read in a book once about a, a young lady that was sitting, it was in, she was in a church where they had like an altar rail. She was over there on her knees just sobbing and wouldn't take, wouldn't take the bread and the cup. And uh, the pastor just said, Take it, Lassie. It's for sinners. If you're coming today and you think, well, I've, I've sinned too much this week. I guess I shouldn't do this. 
would say if you're a believer and you've examined your heart and you realize that, then confess your sins to God and confess his perfection, confess his goodness. This is for us uh, who are so weak and, and frail and faulty to come before a faithful God and acknowledge his perfection. Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread and broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. After supper, he took the cup and he said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. He said, do this in remembrance of me. Lord, we thank you that you have given us this table to come to often as we know that we fall and fail often, but thank you that you are faithful to all your promises and that you have made a unilateral covenant to save all who come to you in faith and believe. We praise you. We thank you. Thank you that as often as we eat this bread and drink this cup, we are proclaiming Christ's death until he comes again. Amen. Before we go, just a few quick announcements. Today after third service, you're invited to join us for tacos and evangelism. We're going to be giving out um, Christmas invites as well as a, a gospel card. El Medina gift boxes, there's still a bunch left to take. This is the last Sunday to, to get those. Uh, Christmas Eve, Christmas Day services, 
and uh, a men's event this coming Saturday. So make sure you come to that, men. And say hello to someone on your way out, even if it's a, um, a face you don't recognize, and actually, especially if it's a face you don't recognize. So let's uh, close with Hebrews 13, 20 and 21. And now, may the God of peace, who brought up from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of the eternal covenant, equip you with everything good that you may do his will, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight, through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. Sovereign in the mountain air, sovereign.